The West of which I speak is but another name for the wild, and what I have been preparing to say is that in wilderness is the preservation of the world. Every tree sends its fibers forth in search of the wild. The cities import it at any price. Men plow and sail for it. From the forest and wilderness come the tonics and barks which brace mankind. Walking by Henry David Thoreau This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. That intro quote was provided by today's guest, Edward Clark Jr. And today's podcast is totally epic. Ed is a a fascinating man and quite an inspiring man and really a shining example of the power of a passionate extrovert to create change in the world, and especially for what one believes in. Ed is a wildlife advocate and a conservationist. He's the president and founder of the Wildlife Center of Virginia. He's been involved in a ton of conservation projects from wilderness designation to pesticide regulation. And today we talk a lot about what happens over at the Wildlife Center, about um, different patients patients that they've had from bears to bobcats to possums. And he shares with us two powerful stories. One is about a poisoned bald eagle and the pesticide conspiracy that he uncovered and went on a quasi-political battle for seven years to, to change law. And the second is really something. I can only describe it as numinous. And it's about Ed's experience with a peregrine falcon. And this one he's never shared before. So I was really honored that he shared it here. Um, It was pretty hard for him to tell. And it was quite an emotional one. So I'm honored. If you're interested in learning more about the Wildlife Center, they've got an incredible Instagram account that shows off, you know, if you want to see all these critters. So that's at Wildlife Center underscore VA. Uh, The center has been the focus of a past Animal Planet show called Wildlife Emergency and a current show on PBS called Untamed. Now, before we get to the podcast, I just want to give a big thank you to everyone who's listened to the first three episodes. The first was mine about my experience coming to nature from living in New York for 10 years and why I created a podcast. The second is with a fly fisherman and outdoorsman, Roger Flincham. And he gives us two really good stories um, about his semi-paranormal experiences when fishing alone in, uh, well, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And the third guest was Lupo Passero, who's a community herbalist. And she tells us a really fascinating account of her intuitive experience with black cohosh, which is a medicinal Appalachian plant. 
So thank you if you've listened to those. I really appreciate it. I appreciate those of you who have sent me DMs that have said really kind words about the podcast. And if you've left a star or a comment over on Apple, those are also very appreciated. Okay, well, you're in for an epic episode. Here we go. We are recording on the, at the backyard of Ed Clark Jr. And you are the founder of the Wildlife Center of Virginia. Co-founder, yes, Co-founder. I sure am. And have been president of the Wildlife Center since day one, which is almost 38 years now. And we are recording on your deck, which is in the... Is this considered the Shenandoah River Valley right here? This is the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, we are in Augusta County, about six miles north of the town of Waynesboro. Uh, so to the east, the mountain ridge you see is the Blue Ridge Mountains and Shenandoah National Park. I can sit here on this deck and on a clear night, uh, see the headlights of the cars on the Skyline Drive. Oh, wow. And to the west, uh, the Allegheny Mountains. And uh, the trees are too thick here on my property to see it, but... When I come out of the driveway uh, up onto the the road on which I live, I can see the Allegheny Mountains, and it's a pretty nice place to be. So, yeah, I wanted to start our conversation today. Um, I ask each guest, so I've noticed that in the country, small talk, even at gas stations or even with my family, it's like, hey, today we saw a fox, or hey, we saw this. So I thought it'd be really fun, because a lot of these listeners probably live in a city, like, have you seen anything interesting or observed anything interesting that plant, animal, fungus, nature in the past week? Well, oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, we're, we're sitting at a, uh, I don't know what they call these tall tables, a, a cabaret table or something like that. Uh, yeah, like um, a bar, bar stool. Bar, bar level uh, table with an umbrella on it and, and kind of bar stools around it. And this is my office now that I can't go to work. Um, so, unfortunately, my uh, silky terrier, who thinks he's an Airedale, has a recessive rooster gene. So, at 5.30 every morning, when the first shaft of sunlight comes in the room, we're up so that he can have breakfast and begin his day, which is about two hours earlier than I might choose to begin my day. But I'm usually out here on this deck by 6 a.m., and um, about a week ago, I just started noticing all the, paying attention to all of the different species of birds coming to a couple little feeders that are here a few feet away from the table and started taking pictures of them. I, I used to uh, lead photo safaris in Africa, so oh, I'm a wow. fairly accomplished wildlife photographer. But um, last year, uh, 2019, was the first year I didn't go to Africa at all in about 16 years. And I just frankly got tired of the traveling and decided to stay home. But I, you know, I pulled out my uh, long lens Nikon D7200 and uh, charged up the battery and started snapping photos of uh, just the birds around. And uh, I, I'm sitting here and I posted them on Facebook and I called them porch portraits. And I think in the last week, I've probably gotten about 25 or 30 species mm. that with, with some pretty reasonably good photographs. So, mm. so I've got six species of woodpeckers in the last week. And for everything from the pileated to red-headed, red-bellied, uh, hairy woodpeckers, downy woodpeckers, uh, just they're, they're just around. And 
Um, as you can see, as we look out through my woods, this uh, used to be a, a field that was subsequently planted with white pines and loblolly pines. And now those pines are probably 50, 60 years old, very, very tall. So we're, uh, you know, well shaded here. But those trees don't have a very long life. And so uh, w whether it's lightning or bugs or just plain old age, a lot of these trees are regularly dying, and I just let them stand as long as they're not in danger of falling on the house or one of the buildings. And uh, it provides this incredible habitat for woodpeckers. They, they come and excavate holes. And so I literally have six species of woodpeckers breeding here on my six-acre piece of woods. Uh, in addition, this year, uh, usually it alternates between great horned owls and red-tailed mm. hawks. This year, the red tails moved in, took over the nest that they fight over and alternate kind of every other year. And so I've had a pair of red tails who produced two fledglings this year. Mm. And we, we may well hear them before we're done here. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I have security cameras on the house because uh, I, I don't spend all of my time here. And uh, so I have these security cameras with motion sensors. And a lot of that's the kind of monitor the wildlife too. And mm -hmm. uh, late one night, I got a beep on my phone and I looked and it was the security camera I have out in the woods mm -hmm. here behind us. It's probably about 40 yards out. And it was a bear mm. that uh, was investigating the, the feeder that I had put up uh, that spewed corn out a couple times a day. And as far as I knew, the feeder was empty because I hadn't filled it, hadn't put batteries in it for quite a while. But it, this little bear was really interested in it, but he was so short he couldn't reach it. But that wasn't any problem. He just pushed it over. Mm. And so I have it all on video of this bear oh, cool. pushing it over. And, and you can just then hear on the security camera video him crunching the plastic to get into the mm. corn. Well, I uh, got over here the next morning and, and checked it out. And there was, in fact, a lot of corn in there. That should have been dry, but it turned out a squirrel had chewed a hole in the top of the feeder, which allowed the corn to get wet. So all the corn was fermented. Ah. So uh, somewhere here in the woods, I had a very drunk bear. Yeah, wandering corn whiskey. Around. And uh, good old <laughs> corn whiskey. And uh, so he was back several times to uh, return to the scene of the crime. So, uh, but uh, have bears here with some regularity. Uh, they're not, certainly not rare have a, a lot of deer here in the yard, and it's very unusual this year that the bucks have been hanging in the yard. Uh, normally, the, I, I've got several does and their offspring, but uh, the, the males don't usually come around until breeding season, which is toward the end of September. But this year, I have three bucks, two of whom, or two of which, are uh, familiars. They're the ones that live here in the area. One is a huge animal but has a relatively small rack, uh, uh, antlers. And the other is a very small buck, a very small male, but has a huge uh, rack of antlers. And mm. uh, they're, they're buddies, so uh, they, they come around. And I always know when they're in the yard and when the breeding season starts because I have a, an archery target out in the yard out there that is a uh, rubber synthetic facsimile of, uh, of a buck deer. And invariably, every fall, these two little bucks will come in and challenge my archery target oh, to wow. a battle and knock his head off. And I can only imagine, I, I've laughed about this for years, 
imagining what they tell their friends about their encounter with that big buck up in Ed's yard. I knocked his head right off, you know, <laughs> and, and indeed wow. they do. So it's, um, you know, it's fun. Uh, so, you know, got a couple of fawns, uh, but they, there's never uh, there's never a dull moment. Like I say, I, I'm in the middle of a relatively rural area. I've got a large farm that adjoins part of the property that's farm is under conservation easement. There are no full-time residents on the farm. And uh, that's, that's a reservoir for wildlife. So I, I see uh, red foxes, occasionally a gray fox. Uh, caught a coyote on the camera the other day. I hear them here. They usually stay closer down to the river away from the houses. But caught a young one uh, on the camera. I have cameras out in the woods to just document what's here. So That's awesome. I just love it. Yeah, I believe it. I we don't. I haven't heard the great horned owl where I'm at, but we always have the barred owls around our cabin, and we'll hear them do that, like um, that, like who cooks for you? Who cooks? And for And then you that all? other one that sounds like a, like a cackling witch, like the <laughs> yeah, all those laughing, the yeah, laugh. Yeah. I love that. And then um, my most recent encounter with the bear was probably a week ago. Um, so I live on like 200 acres. I rent a cabin on it. And there's some trails that they've cut out. And I was just coming around one of those trails and maybe 50 yards away, one of the biggest bears I've ever seen. And usually I kick them up in the woods. So I'll be walking and then I'll spook them and they'll go crashing out and I'll get a little, maybe I'll see him for a second. This was the first time that we were on the same trail and he was coming my direction and he's facing me. And then, you know, I did the, hey bear, hey bear. And very not scared at all, just kind of looked at me slowly turned around and then slowly sauntered off in like such big burly legs. And I was like, wow, this is a big bear. Well, uh, of course, we, uh, the Wildlife Center of Virginia, which is my real job, we haven't really gotten to that yet, but we're the only facility in Virginia authorized to care for black bears, whether adults that have been injured or orphans. And uh, at the time we're recording this, we have 19 bear cubs in there. Uh, Last year we had two. And so- I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy, but uh, the one thing that I have learned over the years now, um, caring for bears, being around them, um, even though I, I don't personally do the caring for the bears, and I'm I'm the boss, but I'm not allowed to go interact with them because we uh, the, we've found over the years that we can designate one or two people to care for them, uh, the, the babies, the cubs, and uh, the cubs will come to know those two people. But if they are the only people those cubs see, they will know that other humans are not their people. Yeah, that's great. And so uh, when we release them at about 15 months of age, they're wild bears. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so essentially we, we designate two people to be the surrogate parent, uh, surrogate mother, since the, the males, the father has no role in rearing cubs, uh, only the mother. And uh, by doing that surrogacy, even though the cubs are very, very used to the, the uh, in, this, in our case, the women who bring them food every day, uh, that's not generalized to all humans. And that was something that I needed to be convinced that that was the case, but it really has been. But uh, now that I have been around bears and spend so much time with them, and of course, uh, the Wildlife Center has what we call critter cams, which is streaming video. And uh, people who want to see what, how these little animals interact and operate and, and behave uh, can go to our website and, and watch that streaming video. We call them critter camps. And they're the most fascinating creatures. Uh, you know, I used to, in my much younger days, 
you know, always aspired to go bear hunting and used mm-hmm. to go bear hunting. And, and now I'd, I wouldn't kill a bear on a bed. Mm. Uh, Were I, you ever successful? Uh, no, I never successfully shot a bear mm. and, and I'm so glad. Interesting. <laughs> Uh, you know, and it's just, it's, you know, people who do hunt bears do it for their own reasons, but, uh, I'd have a different relationship with bears now. And so I believe I, it. I, I, I grew up hunting. I mean, uh, hunting is where I learned to, to love wildlife, uh, quite literally learned to observe it and, uh, stalk it and, and be part of it and learn the natural history of the animals. And I still occasionally uh, deer hunt and occasionally spring turkey hunt. But only for the freezer, and um, and not very seriously. I will mm. have to say, this past uh, deer season, I was at my little cabin in Pennsylvania, um, deer hunting. Uh, well, said I was up there deer hunting. I was there during deer season, but it was cold and rainy and miserable the whole opening week. So most of the uh, week, I spent uh, defending the wood stove in case Bambi jumped through the window of the cabin and tried to uh, make off with it. But, uh, yeah, it's, I, I don't have anything to prove to myself or anybody else anymore. And so for me, uh, I, I frequently take my guns for a walk in the woods. And if it's uh, too late in the day, uh, when I know I'm going to have to drag something out, well, that one got away too. So I wanted to ask that. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the Wildlife Center, but I did want to ask at some point how – because obviously your entire career and decades of your life have been um, focused on the nurturing of animals and the rehabilitation of animals, and yet you can also be a hunter. So, like, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how one can psychologically balance being a nurturer and a killer at the same time. Obviously, well, there's um, there's love for both. Well, it, it, uh, you know, I, I guess it's... Um same can be said in, in so many scenarios. Uh, you know, in the first place, I, I don't consider myself to be an animal person. Now, that doesn't mean I don't love animals, but a true animal person, and I do a lot of work uh, with the animal welfare community worldwide, not just here in the United States, but do consulting and training and uh, support work for uh, companion animal, livestock uh, protection organizations uh, worldwide. I, I've got a, a good relationship with the Humane Society of the United States and their subsidiary, mainly with their subsidiary, the Humane Society International. So, uh, in fact, a lot of my international work has been funded by the Humane Society International, where we go into places like Latin America and work with police and military agencies to teach them uh, safe practices and confiscation of wildlife, combating the illegal wildlife trade. Mm. Been doing that uh, for more than twenty years now, mm. and so anti-poaching stuff. Uh, a lot of anti-poaching stuff, but but it's not just poaching. It's mm. I mean, it depends on how you define poaching. Uh, a lot of it, uh, the illegal wildlife trade, is not going out and killing the animal uh, as most people think of poaching, like rhinos and elephants and that sort of thing. But uh, the illegal trade is the sale of live animals. Uh, the international market in wildlife and wildlife parts and live animals is one of the four or five largest international criminal endeavors on earth. Mm. Uh, human trafficking, arms, drugs, and wildlife. Those are the biggies. Um, and those uh, are often intertwined. So, uh, you know, we've worked in uh, countries all over the world. Work, uh, you know, I've worked in Nepal. I've worked in 
I think seven countries in Latin America, South Africa, uh, Kenya, um, Zimbabwe, Botswana, uh, in, in various places, and, and then indeed trained people from many, many other countries in um, how to safely interdict and confiscate, care for, rehabilitate, and return to the wild animals. So, um, you know, my personal uh, commitment is not to wildlife rehabilitation. That my, you know, I happen to be the president of the world's leading teaching hospital for wildlife medicine. I have rehabilitated many, many animals and cared for them personally. So there's not a job in our hospital that I have not at one time or another performed. But my main role and my motivation for being into it is not to care for the individual individual animals, but to advocate for wildlife, big W. Mm -hmm. uh, to, um, I, I'm a conservationist. I'm mm -hmm. not an animal uh, rights person or an animal welfare person or an animal lover to the exclusion. I'm a pathological extrovert. I, uh, you know, most true animal people are introverts. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's no, no criticism there at all. It's just a fact that they would uh, rather work with animals than people. Mm. And that's why most animal welfare organizations struggle to get along and to find funding and, and to succeed is because they don't like people. They <laughs> see humans as the enemy. Right. I see humans as the, the salvation of wildlife, and that's why our organization has succeeded so well. Uh, my, my job on behalf of the Wildlife Center of Virginia is not to relate to our patients, it's to relate to our public. And your patients are, means the animals. The, the wild animals, mm -hmm. right. Yeah, so we, you know, this uh, year in, in 2020, we're on track in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic for a record-shattering year for patient intake. Mm -hmm. 2019 was a record-breaking year uh, with 3,400 animals coming in uh, last year. We're 20% ahead of that this year. This is the first year that uh, we had more patients come in in June than in May. So, you know, we had 500 and some animals come in in May. Well, we had 833 animals come in in June hmm. 2020. That is, is absolutely unprecedented. And we attribute a lot of that to people not being at work, being at home, mm. being in their yard, social isolating, out taking hikes, doing whatever and finding animals, and they're so desperate for something to do, they're going to pick up an animal and bring it in, even if it doesn't need to be brought in. Yes. And so a lot of our job right now is convincing people to leave wildlife alone rather than intervene. Um, baby birds, when they leave the nest, they can't fly. They don't learn to fly and uh, then miraculously leave fully functional animals. They basically jump out of the nest, flutter to the ground, and the parents teach them to fly on the ground by teasing them with food and making the babies uh, chase them to get the food. And in so doing, they learn to fly. Well, people find a bird on the ground and it's like, you know, I, oh, it can't fly. I've got to bring it in. I've got to rescue it. And it's like, no, it's, it's fine. It's not supposed to fly yet. Mm. Oh, but there are cats in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Well, great. Go catch a cat and bring it in the house and leave the baby bird outside. I think I've, I've made that mistake. I brought in a little baby um, hummingbird. And we, it was a similar scenario. I, yeah, I, I did want to ask, what are some common mistakes people make? Um, for instance, I 
few summers ago, it, was, it would have been my first summer living in Virginia after being in New York City for 10 years. But, you know, I heard the, I heard the barking of a deer and I went out in the woods and then I heard like the little cries and I saw a little fawn and, you know, went up to the fawn and I didn't know, I didn't understand what was happening yet. Sure. Scientifically. So what I thought was happening was this little fawn I found in the wet jungle of where I live was, um, I was having some strange experience with this Abandoned. little fawn. You had to rescue it. It was there I by didn't itself. touch it. I yeah. knew not to touch it, but I also, when it came, it came kind of hobbled towards me and then it kind of laid down in front of me. I thought I was having some incredible experience. And, you know, then I go inside and I research and I find out that when they're a few days old, they can't run yet. So their response to fear is basically go lie down, lie down and be as still as possible. So that was actually an experience where I felt quite embarrassed because I felt like my, I'm in, I'm in, in, speaking of you being extrovert, I'm very much an introvert and I'm very much an intuitive introvert. So that was one time where I felt like my intuition let me down because I felt that what I thought was happening was so different than what was really happening, which was this little animal was having a fear response. It laid down and it was probably absolutely petrified while I'm sitting well, over it. it and I, I, is, I don't want to entirely let you off the hook, but I will let you off the hook somewhat on this <laughs> uh, in that um, newborn fawns, you're right. They're, they're not terribly ambulatory. They can't keep up with their mothers. And, uh, you know, if they just smelled like skunks, it would be so much easier for those of us in the wildlife care business because people would leave them alone. But, you know, Bambi is a four-letter word at our facility. You know, when somebody speaks of Bambi, it's you, the, the word is usually snarled out. The Bambi syndrome, uh, as we characterize it, is um, humans anthropomorphizing wildlife, which is the projection of human emotions and motives onto animals and uh, nothing could be further from the truth so most of us are are brought up and taught to hug it love it caress it make it feel safe um, show it that you mean it no harm and with wildlife that's exactly the wrong thing to do and with um, animals that wild animals that come into animal shelters if they are if that shelter is not trained in the care of wildlife, the next thing you know, they've tamed the animal and they're carrying it around and they, the animal's gotten comfortable with people and essentially they've condemned it to death. Um, the, the habituation of wildlife to humans is almost invariably fatal uh, one way or another. But with a deer fawn— So what would those ways be? Car getting hit by cars. Well, they you know they come in you know I mean the same thing um, that that brings them in uh, everywhere else. People find it alone as you did that deer fawn. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm at least glad you didn't say you picked it up, I brought it home, it. and gave it cow's, cow's milk, uh, which is what the common scenario is. And of course, they don't digest cow's milk well because cow's milk has very very complex sugars, very. Uh, uh, lactose-intense uh, milk sugars, and uh, as with many people, with many wild animals, it gives them diarrhea. So people will bring them in, give them cow's milk. They uh, get very, very dehydrated, very, very weak. They're at death's door, and then people will call us wanting us to save it, mm. uh, whereas if they had called us immediately, we would have told them to leave it alone or take it back. And mom will come. Mom will come. Yeah. And invariably, it just never has failed. When people say, oh, I found it. I'm sure the mother's abandoned it. 
But, you know, guess what? Wild mothers don't forget where they put their babies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they, and then the other thing you say, well, I knew not to touch it. Well, there's nothing wrong with touching it if touching is necessary. So mm-hmm. I, I got a call last night. I was worried that maybe some scent on my hands might make well, my mom. Well, let me, let me tell you that if I could uh, disabuse the, the public of one piece of absolutely fallacious, just completely absurd information, it's that touching a baby animal will cause the mother to abandon it. Okay, not uh, true. Not true. Never has been true, never will be true. Uh, it, it would be tantamount to some mother meeting her child when the school bus drops him off at home. Mm. The mother comes up, sniffs it, and says, Johnny, somebody touched you today. Go find someplace else to live. Mm. Um, especially with birds, because birds have almost no sense of smell. Mm. So as, as we characterize it, that little myth is not natural history. It's child management by guilt trip. Mm. Um, you know, oh, you touch that baby, it's going to die. Well, that's just absurd. If a baby bird falls out of the nest and you know where the nest is, you pick it up, you put it back in the nest, voila, it's done, it's fixed. Uh, and so the, the whole notion of what the public thinks about wildlife is a large part of what the Wildlife Center of Virginia is in business to fix <laughs> because people have some completely screwed up attitudes. Animals are not people. They don't respond to the same motives. You can't take a wild animal home and love its wildness out of it. It's instant. Well, that makes me so frustrated. When I see videos of people who have like raccoons living in their bedroom, it's like, it makes me almost, it's so sad. It makes me like nauseous. It's well, like it, you, it, it you're should. loving some, it's, um, I mean, I'm going to get a little crazy here, but it's mythologically, it's this, to me, it's this like, um, a mother quality, the dark side of a mother quality, where you love things to death, like yeah, why, well, to take and, the wildness from an animal. Militant, militant compassion is how I characterize it. Where, oh, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna save you even if you don't need to be saved, and mm. if it kills you in the process, well, I'm doing what I need to do. Right. Uh, part of that is probably true. Where people are truly well motivated and poorly informed, I tend to think that the majority of that is is far darker motivation. I think it's egotistical to yes. be able to tell their friends, not that I have a new puppy, I have a pet raccoon, yeah. or I have a pet fox, or mm-hmm. I have something you don't have, and that somehow that makes me special. And an, an element of infantilizing. There, I mean, I'm really into psychology, especially Carl Jung's psychology, so mm-hmm. it's very symbolic. So there, that element seems like this level of nurturing to infantilize wildness. So something that's wild and infantilize it to such a point that it's no longer a wild thing. And then, you know, raccoon's teeth are rotting out because they're eating crap. Uh, we, <laughs> we had a case recently with a lady who had had an opossum in her house for two years. Uh, again, living in her bedroom in a cage. And I can only imagine how wonderfully that bedroom smelled. Mm. But um, when we got the, the opossum, it, it had been confiscated by law enforcement brought to us and wait our, wait so virginia department of game and inland yeah, fisheries, and inland fisheries right. somebody had a possum in their house uh, you're virginia, not allowed to virginia have a conservation police uh were tipped off that this woman had an illegal wild pet they brought a search warrant served it got the animal brought it to us and when we got the animal one of our veterinarians uh, characterized it as the worst case of metabolic bone disease she'd ever seen um 
the the animal was so morbidly obese, oh my God. its belly dragged the ground as it walked. And even though possums can be kind of roly-poly, that's not what they do. They Their bellies don't drag the ground. Um, and the bones were all curved. The animal was just truly deformed. Oh, man. And uh, that comes from calcium deficiency, basically, when it's young. And, and so when people find a carnivore and they go to the store and buy hamburger and feed it hamburger or filet mignon, for that matter, that's fine for the protein, but there's no calcium in it. Mm. And uh, they, they need to eat. So, you know, when a, a, a raptor eats a whole mouse, uh, it's getting a complete diet. It's getting the protein from the meat. It's getting the uh, calcium from the bones, but it's also then getting minerals from the internal organs. Interesting. And so that's why uh, predators eat the whole animal instead of just taking the, the muscle tissue. But um, we euthanize the animal. And uh, th- then the ladies- You had to euthanize that possum? Immediately, which was the oh only humane God. thing to do because yeah. the animal, the lady- claim to love the possum, yes. but, um, you know, she was at the same time quite literally abusing it. Yeah, the dark side of love, loving yeah, to death. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, it's a tough thing. All right, Ed just put up his binoculars, so what do you, what do you got sight of here? Uh, Harry Woodpecker that uh, landed here. I haven't, I, I've got the downy woodpeckers that come around all the time, and I know the Harrys are here. I just haven't seen one this week. And he just landed in the tree. So I have now seen all six species of the woodpeckers breeding on the property um, in the last four or five days. I've, I've seen all six species. So. Now, which is the one that's the endangered one? Uh, well, the red cockaded woodpecker yes, okay. is found in southeast Virginia. Got we it. don't have those up this far. Uh, I'd love to see those up here. but uh, And they do indeed nest in woods like this, but they're only found in southeastern Virginia. Got it. Okay, well, I want to hear about, the obviously, the Wildlife Center, and then we were going to get into a story. Originally, we basically were like every other wildlife rehabilitation center in the world. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, what, why is yours world-renowned? What, why is it special? Well, what makes us different is uh, when we fix an animal— and turn it loose. And you don't consider yourself a, re- a rehab clinic. You consider it a wildlife hospital. We, we are a licensed or a, a registered full-service veterinary hospital with the Virginia Board of Veterinary Medicine, the same as any other veterinary hospital in the state. We have four veterinarians on staff, veterinary technicians. It's a state-of-the-art medical facility. Uh, the only capabilities that we occasionally have that we need to go outside for are things like CAT scans, and uh, that we get done at the human hospital. But we have a full laboratory. They'll we bring have, the animals to the human hospital. Absolutely. That's awesome. And uh, But we have our own laboratories. We have our own surgical suites. Uh, we do very, very sophisticated medicine. We are doing very, very sophisticated um, clinical studies. Uh, we're looking at ways— This is the difference. This is the difference because for us, when an animal comes in and we diagnose and treat its injuries, for most centers, that's the end of their job with that animal. For us, that's where the job begins. Well, in 1985, we got our very first bald eagle. Uh, back in 1985 in Virginia, there were only about 50 nesting pairs in the whole state. 
Uh, this bird, of course, but you know, these kinds of cases never come in at 12 o'clock on a Wednesday uh, in the middle of the day. They always come in after hours, typically on a Friday or Saturday or a Christmas Eve when it's least convenient is when you get the most complicated stuff. But this bird came in on a Friday afternoon about 7 o'clock, uh, bald eagle, um, taken to the community college where Dr. Porter's hospital was because at that point we were just a rehab center operating out of a horse barn that's about a half mile, not even that, from where we sit right now. Uh, the medical facility was necessary. Uh, Dr. Porter immediately found the evidence was poisoning. The bird was uh, demonstrating all the classic symptoms of poisoning. Uh, we got in touch with the biologist from the Department of Game and Inland Fisheries, uh, and he sent his people back out to interview the farmer where the eagle had been found and got the full list of all the chemicals that had been used in that field. And uh, so he read that list to me over the phone. I wrote it down. We called the Veterinary Poison Control Center at Texas A&M University and read them the list. And we got to uh, a chemical called Furidan. Uh, the active ingredient is carbofuran. It's a carbamate pesticide. It was the second most popular pesticide in use for corn and soybeans and other small grains in the United States at the time. Got to that, the toxicologist said, bingo, that's it. Uh, nasty stuff, kills millions of birds. Um, here's how to treat it. And treatment is pretty normal, atropine sulfate, which is um, what our military troops uh, carry with them if they think they're going to encounter nerve gas because many modern pesticides are derivatives of chemical warfare agents, nerve agents, and carbofuran is one among them. Neurotoxin, so nerve gas. It's kind of ironic, and I, I guess if somebody is going to invent something to kill stuff, uh, it's good that we've got treaties that say we're not gonna kill each other uh, with it, but uh, many of these things are very, very specific pesticides. Um, some are not, carbofuran was not. But the bottom line was we got this eagle in, identified carbofuran as the poison, gave the, uh, not antidote, but the chemical used to counteract the, the symptoms. The bird recovered and was released. But we knew that this chemical, carbofuran, furidan, was poisoning eagles. So uh, in our naivete, we reported it to the state wildlife agency. They said, well, you know, we don't control pesticides. We'll have to call Virginia Department of Agriculture. So we reported to the Virginia Department of Agriculture. And they go, okay, yeah, what do you want us to do about it? It's like, well, wait a minute. This is national bird, highly endangered at that time, very rare in Virginia. And we know something's hurting it. Don't you care? So we finally badgered uh, the Department of Agriculture into doing what they called a review of this chemical. Well, at the time, we just didn't know how the good old boy network uh, was, was really in control of this stuff. And so eventually they came back and said, yeah, this is toxic stuff, but it's supposed to be. It kills bugs and, you know, we're not going to take any regulatory action. Well, all of the testimony, they did a public comment period. All of the testimony was public record. So I just requested a copy of all the testimony. Well, it turns out our state entomologist, who was a professor at Virginia Tech, entomology is the study of insects. And in, in this particular case, um, this guy's expertise, allegedly, 
was uh, the study of problematic insects. So insect pests was really his thing. Uh, so his letter to the guy in charge of pesticides for the Virginia Department of Agriculture was, yeah, this stuff is really toxic. It kills everything. But if we let the environmentalists get this one, they're just going to come back for another one and another one and another one. So my suggestion is never say die. Uh, don't do anything. That was our state expert. Well, I took that letter and marched it straight into the governor's office, then Governor Chuck Robb. And uh, I, was, I was just horrified. Well, fortunately, Chuck was just horrified too. The outrage was that this stuff was not just dangerous to wildlife, it was dangerous to people. And the person paid to give expert testimony was not giving expert testimony, he was giving personal political opinion. So the governor called him to Richmond. Well, this guy was a tenured professor. He couldn't have cared less what the governor said to him. Well, he lost his position as state entomologist, but you know he still finished out his career as an entomologist, teaching other people about entomology at Virginia Tech. But we took on that chemical. So we then took it to EPA thinking, well, the state won't do anything. Um, and we found out during that process that the state of Virginia at the time didn't have the authority to do anything. Uh, so EPA uh, has an office of pesticide programs. So every pesticide that is used in the United States must be registered for use, especially if it's used for agriculture. So we took it to EPA. Well, bear in mind, this was during the Reagan administration, and the then director of EPA subsequently went to prison for collusion and corruption but uh, nothing happened and nothing happened and nothing happened. And uh, they kept saying they were doing a, um, a special review and they were doing a scientific review. And finally, one day I got a call from a guy who wouldn't originally give me his name, but he said that he had contacts inside the Office of Pesticide Programs and was I really serious about fighting this stuff? Well, by then I was serious as cholesterol about fighting it. And it turned out that there was a lot of illegal activity going on inside EPA. And um, the chemical, the EPA's scientific review committee, scientific advisory committee, had unanimously recognized the, the threat, the unreasonable threat, and recommended that this chemical be banned. Well, the director of that program kept finding fault with what the advisory committee said. The advisory committee was advisory. They didn't have the regulatory authority. So they kept sending it back to re-examine and do this and do that and do the other thing. And it turned out um, that information in the files was disappearing from the files. Well, a, a wildlife biologist who worked for EPA went and copied the entire file and smuggled it out of the building and uh, literally met my dad in a subway station and gave him this box of purloined records, a uh, very you know, deep throat kind of uh, thing. I mean, it was all theoretically public record, so there was nothing illegal here, but he clearly would have lost his job if they had known it. And what we found was that the company that manufactured it falsified the test results on its safety and made up stuff and were caught by EPA and allowed to go back and reword what they said so that it wasn't a bald-faced lie, it was just misleading. And, uh, and they were just 
full of that. To kind of cut to the chase on this, um, we found out Virginia was kind of hamstrung by whatever EPA did because all Virginia's laws were, if it's registered by EPA, it's automatically registered in Virginia. The next governor who came in was Governor Jerry Belisles, who uh, Jerry was a, a great environmental governor. Uh, he created the Secretariat of Natural Resources. And, um, I had done some work for his campaign, so I ended up getting appointed to what was then called the Council on the Environment. I was the first professional conservationist ever appointed to the state's Environmental Policy Board. And in that position, I got to ask hard questions about pesticides, and people couldn't blow me off. And we convened uh, a series of hearings, had the representatives of the company come in, and they told straight-faced lies to this committee. And I caught them in it, called them out on it, and went public with it into the newspapers that the company was saying things untrue, giving false testimony. They weren't giving a testimony under oath, so we couldn't get them on that. But we could darn sure get them on just basic honesty. Governor came back and said, I want a new pesticide law for Virginia. There was one session of the General Assembly left in his gubernatorial term, and he wanted the legislation ready to deliver to that legislature. Uh, he approached us uh, about Labor Day, so early in September, and said, I, I need to pre have these bills pre-filed in December. So essentially, we had 90 days to rewrite the state's pesticide laws. And um, we had gotten the Wildlife Center of Virginia, and I personally had gotten to be known as the the advocate for pesticide safety, not only for wildlife, but for humans as well, because we found that uh, these laws had left huge vulnerabilities for human health and safety. And uh, then a, a friend with the Roanoke Times, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning environmental uh, journalist, uh, wrote a, a five-part series for the Roanoke Times uh, on pesticides in Virginia. And that series was a runner-up for the for the Pulitzer that year, but uh, it basically laid out the, the devastating uh, potential of Virginia's laws. And what they used were the eagles and the carbofuran, that was one of the biggies. Uh, we had a situation where all of the uh, shellfish in the Chesapeake Bay were dying. Nobody knew why. Uh, crabs were disappearing, oysters, clams were disappearing, uh, just not reproducing. Well, it, came to find out that it was an anti-fouling agent being used by the United States Navy on its ships, uh, a chemical called tributyl tin, which is a pesticide. Virginia couldn't do anything about it. And then the uh, orchid man in Galax, Virginia, went into somebody's home, treated it a historic home for wood bores, and uh, didn't do it properly. The couple moved back into the house, and within about a week or 10 days, husband and wife uh, were both dead uh, because the house had been fumigated with arsenic gas, but uh, the, the two guys that did the job were functionally illiterate, so they couldn't read the instructions on how one was to use this highly toxic chemical, so they didn't, um, you're, you're supposed to wrap all furniture, seal it in plastic so that the gas doesn't get into the furniture. Well, they didn't do that. And so they came in uh, after the uh, house was tented, which means the whole house is sealed up in plastic. Uh, they sniffed the air with the devices and said, okay, it's fine, you can move back in. Well, every time they'd sit on the couch or on an easy chair, 
and the air in those cushions compressed out, uh, it would dose them with cyanide gas. And within a week or 10 days, both of these people were dead. And uh, what we found is that the chemicals used had been legally purchased because under Virginia law at the time, you had to have a certified pesticide applicator's license to purchase restricted-use pesticides, not to apply restricted-use pesticides. So the purchasing agent for a school system could go buy dangerous chemicals, hand them out to the janitors in the schools, the custodians in the schools, who would then spray these chemicals around the kitchens and cafeterias in the schools to kill cockroaches, um, potentially poisoning children. And it just went on and on. And so this, uh, this series in the Roanoke Times really got the attention of the, the legislature, of the public. And so we came up with some just fundamental changes in Virginia's laws. The new law we recommended passed unanimously. Part of the law was uh, to embody a new pesticide control board, which was a regulatory body. It was not going to be handled by bureaucrats anymore. It was going to be handled by appointed political appointees, but who had the mandate to, um, to regulate things on behalf of the public, not on behalf of the agriculture industry or whatever. Their very first regulatory action was to ban carbofuran in Virginia. Now, this was years after we got the first eagle in. It took literally six or seven years to finally get it legally banned in Virginia. Three days later, the company voluntarily withdrew it from markets nationwide. That was literally, that was because of one bird and the fact that we were actively engaged in the political process. That is probably the most compelling story I have that, that illustrates why we're different. Yes. And that we, we don't declare victory when we save a bird. We declare victory when we solve a problem and we eliminate an environmental toxin that is not just killing one bird. EPA's estimates when we got the documentation um, that had been hidden from us by the head of the Office of Pesticide Programs, um, EPA had estimated that this chemical each year was killing 2 million birds in the United States when used according to label directions. It was that bad. Wow. Yeah, this is the difference I always hear um with the hunter conservationist, well, the difference between a conservationist and an, an animal rights person. The animal rights person is interested in the individual, the individual creature, whereas the, the conservationist is um, obviously interested in the entire population and the future of that of that. Well, and, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of people that characterize themselves as animal rights advocates, the rights they assign to the animal are basically human rights. Yes, exactly. And... Um, some of which are appropriate and some of which are really inappropriate. Totally. Um, so we're going to, you know, kind of get back to that. We're going to save you if it kills you in the process right. sort of thing. Um, okay. You told me on the phone that you had a peregrine falcon story that you've never told. And you said you would think about whether yeah, or not to tell. I, I'll, I'll share it with you. One of the things that we do at the Wildlife Center is um, we want people to care about wildlife. Our, our mission as an organization is teaching the world to care about 
and to care for wildlife and the environment. It's really what we do. We, we want people to develop a relationship with nature. I, I don't care if you can name every bird or every tree in the woods. Um, you can name them and still not care about them. But if you care about them, make up your own name. I don't care what you call it. Just care about it. And so we use uh, what we call animal ambassadors or wildlife ambassadors, non-releasable animals that each have a story. And so their stories illustrate the lessons we're trying to convey. So we, my very first um, companion uh, and, and colleague, animal ambassador, was a red-tailed hawk. Uh, and her nickname or her name was R.T., for red tail, pretty clever, and um, was, she was one of the first four animals we received, four, four or five animals we got at the wildlife center. She was already disabled, had already been in captivity, but she taught me so much. Uh, very, very forgiving bird, gorgeous, gorgeous bird, not able to fly, uh, probably would have been had there been true veterinary care for her when she was originally injured, but she was in a in the SPCA over in Charlottesville, along with a number of other birds. And so when we started, they transferred all their wildlife patients, all their wildlife residents to us. A couple of those animals were able to be released. A couple of them had to be euthanized. And this particular hawk became my uh, partner. Well, I learned a lot about handling raptors and training raptors and uh, that sort of thing from a number of friends who, uh, a couple of friends who were falconers who taught me how to build the hardware and put the cuffs on their legs and that sort of thing. And over the years, I've, I've worked with a lot of different birds, but, but one of the birds with whom I had the most unusual experiences um, was a peregrine falcon. And this particular bird had uh, come to us uh, from the, the peregrine fund out in Idaho and had been part of the breeding program out there. And uh, he had gotten too old uh, to be an effective sire for uh, their captive breeding program for peregrines, and he was sent to me. So he was a fully flighted, completely healthy peregrine falcon, but one that had been hatched in captivity, had spent his whole life in captivity, and was, was just ill-prepared to, to go back to the wild. And uh, his um, real prowess was getting out of his cage. He could find ways to get out of an enclosure faster than any bird I ever saw. And so consequently, his nickname became Houdini. And uh, Houdini uh, was, was my bird. So I, I got him. Uh, he had been partially trained. He'd been used as a falconry bird some. Um, by the head of the Peregrine uh, Fund. And uh, he had, so he was already pretty accustomed to sitting on a glove and doing that sort of thing. But uh, we train education birds very differently from the way falconry birds are trained because a lot of falconry birds are kept hooded or blindfolded, if you will, until they're ready to hunt. And then whatever moves, they want to go after it. Uh, well, we do exactly the opposite. We're trying to desensitize the birds to movement and to motivation to go pursue prey. 
But uh, Houdini was was just a, a really special bird. The peregrine was still highly endangered in the United States at that time. And so being able to uh, go out into public with this bird was um, was a privilege, but it was also a very powerful statement because he, he was just a beautiful little male uh, peregrine. And uh, it, it, it really got people thinking that this is not an abstract creature. This is a real living, breathing, beautiful, remarkable animal, the fastest animal on the planet, able to uh, achieve speeds of 220 miles an hour in what they call a stoop or a, a dive when the peregrine, uh, literally, they, his, his common name is duck hawk, and they literally can overtake flying ducks from behind and hit them with enough force to knock them out of the air. Uh, uh, certain species of ducks can fly 90 miles an hour in flat level flight. Well, the peregrine comes out of the sky at 220 miles an hour. And uh, it, it's just, I, I've only seen it in the wild a few times and it's breathtaking. So... Houdini and I traveled all over, and the Wildlife Center by that time had become quite well-known nationally, and so we were frequently called on to uh, do presentations at national conferences. I had just been at the National Conservation Meeting of the Garden Club of America, which is a, a very, very old, very uh, respected, very storied generally women's club, although now many chapters uh, have invited men, but um, it was being held in Michigan. And uh, we flew, the Houdini and I flew to Michigan, uh, gave our presentation to this organization. Um, the Virginia folks knew us real well, and they had been in charge of the meeting. So they invited us out there. So I, I had been there, uh, did the presentation, flew back into D.C., and then on a Sunday afternoon before I left D.C. to return to the Shenandoah Valley, one of our board members was having a reception for us in her home. And it was a warm day, uh, so she decided to have it outside on her patio. Well, we had been traveling for hours and hours and hours. We were both exhausted. So when um, I got ready to bring Houdini out of his cage, uh, I made a really serious mistake. I did not follow the full protocol about hooking his long leash to his, the leg straps called Jess's. Uh, they were hooked together. So I just looped my thumb through that figure and I'm going to have him out for just a couple of minutes and it'll be fine. Well, it wasn't fine. So there we were on a Sunday afternoon in Potomac, Maryland, on my board member's patio, 20, 30 people there, and um, gave the presentation, got Houdini out of his box. I was so tired and just so ragged out that I, I made a careless mistake. There's no, no two ways about it. I didn't hook his long leash onto his leg straps, his jesses, um, I thought I could just hold him, have him out for a few minutes and put him right back in because he was such a good bird. He just never uh, bolted or baited or jumped off the glove in any way. He just, you know, would come out and look around and talk to you and kind of do the thing. But I'd always had him indoors. And when I had him outside that afternoon, uh, as I was talking to the audience, 
um, he something spooked him and he jumped and I lost my grip on his strap and he flew off into the woods along the Potomac River and the CNO Canal. And this was on a Sunday afternoon. And, um, you know, I was trying to play it down, trying to um, not freak out. Finished my program. Everybody left. I said, oh, it's no problem. He'll be sitting out here in a tree. I'll go out there and get him. He'll come down. Well, that was wishful thinking in, in the highest order. So Sunday night, I searched and searched and searched for him. Uh, one of the things that happens when a bird of prey is sitting where it can be seen by songbirds is songbirds will mob it. And so typically, I would have expected to be able to hear the songbirds raising cane and then go get him because he would fly to the glove if I went with food, which I had. But it got to be dark. I didn't find him. So I drove home that night, which was um, two hours and a half away. I got up at four o'clock, drove back to Potomac, Maryland, spent the entire next day uh, searching and searching and searching. Um, Tuesday, so you've been gone now almost 48 hours. Uh, Tuesday, I uh, went back and started searching again. I had borrowed a canoe. I went up and down the CNO Canal. I went out to the river, uh, asked everybody, put up signs, nothing. And um, it was, it, I, I just was um, completely beside myself because it was my fault, no question about it. The straps on his legs were connected together so I knew he was going to get tangled up, and if he got tangled up, I knew he was going to die. And um, it was just, it was a horrible, horrible feeling. And I did everything I could. Searched and searched and searched. Barred the canoe up and down the canal. Couldn't find him. Nobody had seen him. Nobody had heard of him. And so I finally just gave up. I mean, when I truly said, I have done all I can do. There is nothing more I can do. I'm going to have to live with this. So I went back to where the, the uh, community's canoe livery was, and I, I brought the canoe back in. And it was a remarkable sensation, and I can, in telling it, I can feel it. It was um, as if somebody were pouring warm water on the top of my head, and this warmth came down across my head, across my whole body, and I got an overwhelming um, urge to put the canoe back in the water and go in the wrong direction. I had seen which way the bird flew. He flew off to the left at full speed, peregrine speed, out of sight. I got this, I don't know what, message to go the other way, the wrong way. And I'm, I have no idea why. And I hadn't gone more than about 10 minutes down the CNO Canal when I hear the bird calling to me. He had seen me in the canoe. He was, in fact, tangled up in a tree, um, pretty far up off the ground. Um, but he saw me, he recognized me. And he called to me. I mean, just Raisin Cane called to me. I could not believe it. It was just um, 
it, it, it was nothing that I, it, it, the reason I don't tell this story is because I still find it hard to believe. So um, what happened next is still a bit of a blur. The next thing you know, I'm up in that tree and I've shinnied out on this limb. I've gotten the bird untangled. I've got him on my hand. We're so happy to see each other. And um, then it dawned on me, I climbed that darn tree and forgot to bring the leash with me. So I still didn't have the leash. And I thought, I'm going to have to put this bird inside my shirt to climb out of this tree to keep him from flying off again. Well, it became pretty obvious that um, he wasn't going to let go of me any more than I was going to let go of him. So I literally, I set him on my shoulder and I climbed down out of the tree. Now, I still don't remember climbing up the tree. I have no idea how I got in that tree. And when I got back to the towpath on, along the canal, this 16-foot canoe was laying on the towpath. Well, I apparently got out of the canoe, dragged it up a four-foot embankment, and left it on the towpath when I went after the bird. Well, I had his food in the canoe, and once he saw his food, that was it. He was, he was back in there, and so I uh, got him home. We were fine. He was happy to see me. I was happy to see him, and the bullet was dodged. And that, I thought, is the worst experience I could have. And so, turns out then, about two years later, I was in Williamsburg, Virginia, doing a presentation. Did not have him with me. My then wife in, in this house, I've got an aviary around the corner here that's um, where he lived. And uh, she called um, and said, is Houdini with you? Well, he wasn't with me. So there was this horrible sinking feeling. And she says, well, he's not in his cage. I got home late that night from Williamsburg. Um, went out and looked, and it turned out that one of our Labrador retrievers had dug a hole under the side of the cage, up into the cage, so that she could get the remains of a rat that was in there ripening, where the, the peregrine had not finished his food. Uh, so the Labrador was going after it. Well, as soon as that hole was under the wall, the peregrine was on the ground, going into the tunnel, came out the other side, and was gone. So this time I was not going to search by myself. So this was, on, again, uh, one night. The next morning I called the office, uh, got all staff from the Wildlife Center. We searched the woods. We searched the fields. We drove around. We looked. I even had it put on local television. We got calls about, oh, I think I've seen your bird, and we got calls about Cooper's hawks and red-tailed hawks, and every one of them I tracked down, uh, no peregrine. So again, 48 hours later, the second day, um, I'd done everything I could do, uh, put in a call to the office and said, um, you know, I, I've just done it all. But I was down in that corner of the yard, far down in, in, right in the edge of the woods, and at the point at which I gave up and just said, at least the bird did not have straps on. I never again made that mistake of leaving the straps on the bird. So the bird was flying free, uh, out uh, doing peregrine stuff, and I thought, well, at least he'll, he's not going to get tangled up. And I gave up. And 
uh, as I started back to the house, I had that same sensation of the, the warm water being poured on my head and slowly coming down. And so I, I thought, well, I've got to start this over again. I, I still didn't believe that I was having the feeling and, it, and I didn't know what it meant. Well, I called the office and said, you know, that's it. Bird's gone. Uh, nothing I can do about it. And um, they said, well, you know, you know, so somebody told you that he's been found. No, nobody's told me. So it turned out that, um, you know, and everybody was upset about it. It turned out that one of my colleagues at the Wildlife Center was still on the phone with the people that called and said, you know, it's the darndest thing. There's this peregrine falcon sitting on our roof. And, uh, you know, is that normal and whatever, whatever. So they hadn't even gotten off the phone with a person. I, by coincidence, is it, called the office. I immediately got the information. The bird was about a mile and a half from here, straight flight. I pull into the driveway of this house, and there he sits on the roof of the house. So I get out of the truck, and he obviously recognized me. And it was like he, they bobbed their head up and down, which is kind of a, a happy thing. And uh, so I, I brought along his food. He was a very food-oriented bird. So I put his food down in the yard. I had this big net. I was going to catch him and everything was going to be fine. So he comes off the roof of that house like a guided missile heading right straight for the, the rat, frozen rat I had put in the yard. But instead of picking up the rat, he just swooped down over it and took off for the, the horizon. So off he goes and he flies out about 100 yards just full speed, and then he turns and flies in this great big circle. Comes back and lands on the roof. Bobbed his head up and down. Like, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? Want to see it again? Flies off the roof, does it again. Flies around in this big circle, 100-yard radius. Flies back, lands on the roof. This time he was ready to go. He literally he walks down the roof sits on the gutter, I put my hand up, he jumps on my hand. He was done, and I brought him home. And uh, it was like, you know, twice in one lifetime. This, this just, and, and I, I still, I, I, I still have a hard time believing that this actually happened. This is one of the reasons I don't ever tell this story. Then a couple of years later, I was... Um, planning to uh, be going out of the country to work in Costa Rica. And uh, I went out, Houdini is not in his cage. Couldn't figure out how he got out, but he was gone. And so we searched and we put out notices and we put it on TV and it was all over everywhere. And um, again, no, no straps on him, uh, but he was gone. And so that happened, I think, on a like Monday or Tuesday night. I found out he was gone. Couldn't find him anywhere. And I thought, well, the, the chances of him coming back a third time is just astronomical. And um, I pretty much wrote it off and thought, well, okay, he's free. He's going to go do his peregrine thing. And, you know, I've had six years with him and, and I never had another relationship with an animal like that. And... Um, Six days went by, and I got a call on Sunday morning, the day I was to leave for Costa Rica, 
from the office at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning saying, you're not going to believe this. Somebody has found Houdini, and you're not going to believe this. Well, the person who found the bird uh, was a wildlife center volunteer who lives 25 miles away. And the bird had landed in her backyard and was sitting on her back porch railing when her husband came out in the morning to let the dogs out. And he came back in and he says, uh, you're not going to believe this, but I think Ed's bird is in the backyard. And she's going, nah, it couldn't be. They went out and sure enough, there he was. And... Um, they picked him up, got him into a crate. He didn't resist. Uh, he had lost 50% of his body weight. He was obviously not a skilled hunter. Uh, they found him eating something in the backyard. But um, so they, I met them when they got to the wildlife center with him. And he was so weak, he was lying down. He was really old by then too, uh, probably 16, 17 years old. So he, he was well past normal life expectancy. But when uh, they opened the back of the vehicle and I opened the crate and he looked up and saw me, he, had, he was lying what we call sternal, so down on his breast in the cage. And he stood up, walked out, jumped up on my hand, and we went into the building. Um, he was really, really in bad shape. So I couldn't uh, just give him a meal. His, uh, it, you, you can't take a bird that's starved and feed it a big meal without killing it. And so I, I was in there um, every half hour or so to give him one tiny bite. And I had to leave home. Uh, this was on a Sunday, so I was in there all up until about midnight on Sunday night. And I had to leave for the airport to fly to Costa Rica. I had to leave the house at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I stopped by the center at 4 o'clock in the morning. He was down in his cage, but he, he stood up in the cage, came out to me, chattered at me like he did, went back in his cage and, and lay down. And I got to the airport. They called me two hours later. They called me two hours later and told me they found him dead when they got in at six. Um, so he, he waited for me. So um, that's the first time I've ever told that story. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, it's hard to tell. I know you mentioned that one shouldn't personify animals, but like... How can you describe your emotional relationship um, with this animal? My emotions are my emotions. I, I, he was such an incredible bird. Um, one person to whom I told that story, um, I used to be on the board of the National Wildlife Federation. One of the other board members was a woman uh, from Minnesota, Native American. Uh, she taught Native American religious studies at uh, college in Minnesota, name of which escapes me, but... I told her that story. Not only was I crying when I told it, she was crying. She mm -hmm. says, um, 
she says, that's big medicine. She says, mm-hmm. I know you've heard that phrase. You've heard it used uh, in cliche terms. You hear it on cowboy movies. She says, but this is what it means. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what the, the phrase, this is powerful medicine. And I said, well, what does it mean? How do I interpret this? Three times with this animal. And you know, in fairy tales, things happen in threes. Uh, well, I didn't, but <laughs> I'll take your word for it. But um, what does it mean? And she basically said to me, she says, I have no idea. And I said, well, I don't either. She said, but you will when you need to. She says, when it's time for you to understand it, you'll understand it. And uh, boy, I'm, I'm not sure to this day that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, w- I do know that it is one of the most powerful I'll have to call it spiritual because it's not intellectual. There was nothing intellectual about that. Mm-hmm. Um, spiritual, I, I don't know. I can't call it supernatural because I don't know that it's not absolutely natural. Mm. But certainly spiritual experiences of my life. Um, I'm still not sure what it means, but I can tell you that I don't make fun of anybody anymore when they tell stories like that. Um, well, the name of this podcast is Our Numinous Nature, and that was a numinous experience. Well, it, it certainly, um, I, I've never... Have you ever felt that sensation at any other time in your life? Never. And so it happened those two times? Three times. No, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I had a feeling the third time when I got the call that he was coming back, I woke up that morning, not with precisely the same feeling, but a feeling that something significant was about to happen. If I, if I were, I mean, if you were allowed to just be whimsical, what, do you have any intuitions on, or imaginations um, on what? I'm, I'm just not willing to go there because I don't want to trivialize it by trying to define it in terms that I can understand. Sure. Um, Undefinable. It, well, it, it's not, I can't reduce it to what humans can get. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's it's an experience I'll never forget. It's a relationship with an animal I've never had before. You know, I've had pets with whom I had special relationships, and people say, "Oh, you know, this pet knows what I'm thinking." Well, that's different. Mm-hmm. Um, this bird came to me for a reason, mm-hmm. and it kept coming back to me for a reason. Um, the first time when he was loose in the woods and he saw me and called to me. Um, that's unbelievable. And that yeah, sensation, uh, I kind of know what you mean, that sensation. Um, you know, you see it depicted in some kind of mystical and religious art, this kind of beam of, of like hot light going, coming up through that yeah. crown. Well, it's, again, it's, I, I tend to be sort of a cynical realist. I, I don't consider well, myself to sen- be... Your sensation function. Yeah, your, well, your sensation it's, you know, it's, I, I tend to try and explain everything. And, right. um, you know, I've, I, in my younger years, I had um, many clairvoyant experiences. I had many ESP experiences. And I used to take all that for granted. Wow. Um, where the phone would ring and I'd know who was on the phone. Before I answered it, you know, and some of that is, okay, it's predictable that so-and-so would have called, but no, not in these cases. Or uh, somebody would walk into the room and I'd answer a question they hadn't yet asked. And I was distracted and not paying attention. And it's like, oh, yeah, here, 
how'd you know I was going to ask that? Or, you know, it, and it would, um, I guess I've seen so many people that have become so new agey trite about yes. spiritual this and yes. spiritual that and it's communing with animals and, you know, and particularly <laughs> dealing with, with wildlife. Um, oh, I have a way with animals. Well, there are all kinds of dead people out there with ways with animals and their way with animals is usually to take an animal into captivity and steal its wildness and that's their way with animals. Mm -hmm. And they do it um, in some sort of phony baloney mm -hmm. uh, justification that, oh, it's my spirit animal or I you know, have this or that or the other thing. And, and uh, particularly, not, it's not as bad as it used to be, but everybody wanted to claim Native American heritage mm -hmm. and their spiritual relationship with animals. Um, I still, I still don't fully understand it. Um, I, I still um, don't really get why it happened to me. It did. I um, know that it was significant. Yes. Uh, I, like I say, it's um, it's beyond my mere mortal comprehension. What was at work there? But the thing that it did tell me is there is more at work around us than what we comprehend. Yes. And so that may be the only part of the message that's there. Um, 100%. But so there, that's enough. So um, there's a book called Women Who Run With the Wolves, and it's uh, written by um, Pinkola. Oh, what's her first name? Anyways, Pinkola Estes. And Clarissa Pinkola Estes, and um, she—it's a book of fairy tales that are fairy tales for women, and basically a lot of it is women reclaiming their wildness. Yeah. yeah. And there's a story in it that really moved me. That is about four rabbis, and all four see God. One of them instantly goes crazy. The next one becomes obsessed. There's, there's nothing he can do but think about what was the meaning of that? What was the meaning of that? The next one say, it was just a dream. It was meaningless. Forget it. No point even thinking about it. The fourth and the appropriate way to handle experiences like that was the rabbi wrote poems and he sang songs and that's it. Yep. Like I, I that was an experience. I felt it. It was beautiful. I revere it, but I don't have, there doesn't need to be anything else. Yeah. It's, uh, well, I can't sing. That's one of the great <laughs> lamentations of my life. Well, I, you've told the story. You've recounted well, it. Well, so. yeah, it's, um, well, I think telling it to my, my close friend who, who was Native American and very spiritual in traditional ways and very understanding of traditional spirituality, um, you know, she helped me not freak out about it. Because, sure. I mean, there, there's, uh, you know, the... the what is the potential of such and such happening three times in a row by coincidence? Zero. Uh, I mean, just zero. I'm telling you fairy tales. Things happen in threes. Yeah, and it's uh, and it feels a little like a fairy tale. I mean, it, if, again, this is the kind of story that if somebody else told me, um, my bullshit alarm would go off, you know, out, off the charts. But, um, and well, so that's so the reason I don't tell the story. I'm so appreciative of you telling us because that's the kind of stuff I'm super interested in. And I love that you told that. Well, it's, it's powerful. It's, it's the kind of thing that I don't pretend to have that kind of relationship with wildlife in general. Mm -hmm. I don't pretend to have that kind of relationship, unfortunately, with people in general. 
Uh, I love people. I, you know, I'm very social. I like getting out, but um, that was otherworldly. Uh, that bird and I. Um, Do you consider yourself religious? No, not not in the traditional secular sense. Um, I don't. Or, or do you consider yourself spiritual in any way? Well, I mean, in a sense, or just agnostic, open to no. I, I wouldn't even. I wouldn't say agnostic at all. I, I think the situation for me is that I know things that I'm supposed to do, uh, whether that is spiritual knowledge or ethical foundation or whatever. What do you mean? A sense of destiny. Destiny, a sense of a purpose, purpose more than destiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel like I'm to some degree in charge of my own destiny, and I can make decisions that affect that, and and have some good, some bad. Um, but I, I feel a sense of obligation to fulfill a calling, and uh, the Wildlife Center of Virginia is certainly a manifestation of that calling. Uh, my engagement with public policy. Um, deliberations is a manifestation of that calling. Um, I was wondering if you wanted to tell about, so I watched, I don't want to give it away. I want you to say it. So I watched one of the episodes where you talked about perhaps the most disturbing animal you had, the most disturbing case that you had come into the hospital. And it it was quite disturbing to look at. Oh yeah. Well, (laughs) believe me, it was a whole lot more disturbing to see. Uh, Five or six years ago, Got a call one day that uh, there were, the state wildlife agency biologists were bringing us a bear that was suffering from sarcoptic mange. Uh, sarcoptic mange is a disease that affects dogs and lots of wildlife, and it's basically a mite. Sarcoptes, uh, the, the mite, burrows into the skin of its victim uh, literally goes down and then at a right angle kind of tunnels in under the skin and it is a parasite that feeds on blood. Well, it feeds on blood um, by injecting an enzyme, as do ticks, that prevent blood coagulation and uh, it causes a very severe allergic reaction uh, in the victims and that allergic reaction uh, causes the hair to fall out. Oh, there's a mangy dog. Well, you call it a mangy dog because it's a dog with significant hair loss or large bald patches. And right now it's very common in foxes. So people see foxes uh, very frequently that, you know, it's just half bald, uh, skinny tail, no bushy tail, no thick fur. And that's what it's from. But it's relatively new in bears. It's been documented, but not as an epidemic, which is what we're now seeing. And this uh, current East Coast epidemic, we believe, started in central Pennsylvania. Uh, and Pennsylvania still is, is the worst location for this, but it's now spread into Virginia. And this was uh, this bear was brought into us, um, probably a four or five-year-old sow. And a normal, healthy four or five-year-old sow would weigh 250 pounds-ish, depending on the time of the year. Uh, This bear was quite literally skin and bones, weighed about 100 pounds, and had almost no hair anywhere on her body. And her body was just encrusted with scabs, and you could just see the torment 
uh, on her face. And so, and she, she was anesthetized when we got her in. And of course, when we handle those animals, we have to be in full uh, protective garb, personal protective equipment, or PPE as it's called, which in the case of handling a patient like that is uh, face mask, uh, cap, surgical gown, rubber gloves or, or nitro gloves, uh, all taped up so that there's no possibility uh, that those mites can pass to your own skin because humans can get uh, sarcoptic mange as well. Um, so the, this poor animal was, uh, I mean, it, it absolutely was heartrending. Uh, it, it was just impossible to see the suffering this animal had endured and was still alive and was still trying to survive. So we decided um, we were going to, do something about that. And, and the, the, you know, the good news is mange is relatively easy to treat. There, there's a very common uh, anti-parasitic drug called ivermectin. It's the same drug you give to your dog if your dog's got worms or uh, things of that nature. And, uh, and it cures mange in bears. But the problem with it is you have to give multiple doses. Well, this bear was so disabled, we knew we were going to have to keep her around for a while. Uh, so, uh, we did in fact, uh, at that time, give her ivermectin and then give her the second and third doses. She did recover. And when she went back to the wild, she was so beautiful and just thick black, blue, black coat, shiny. And, uh, we put her tracking collar on her and followed her for almost a year after she was released. And uh, when we found out the area in which she was living and her circuit, if you will, we put out trail cameras and, and baited her into the trail cameras where we could get a picture of her. And it was just remarkable. Trouble is, there, the, uh, the incidence of mange in these animals was increasing and uh, there's just not enough room to catch them all and bring them all in. So we started working on an alternative treatment, which was a new drug that had come on the market for the treatment of um, companion animals, dogs in particular, called Brovecta. Uh, the active ingredient is a, a, a drug called Fluoroloner, and uh, it's a one-dose treatment. So we started um, experimenting with it to see if we could use it in wildlife. And the thing with an animal like a bear is you can't just give an animal like that a drug, get it better and turn it loose because um, the same issues apply to certain wild species as apply to chickens and cows and pigs. A farmer can't just dose up a cow with antibiotics or some other drug and send it to the market. There are legal requirements for time periods uh, during which, before sale, that animal can't receive antibiotics or drugs or steroids or whatever because it's a food animal. And those chemicals through the meat of the food animal would pass to humans. Well, deer, rabbits, bear, other game species that are consumed by hunters are also food animals. So we knew that this chemical was very effective in treating diseases and parasites like mange, but what we didn't know was how long it would remain in the body of the bear, how long before the animal was released or before the next hunting season uh, was the period during which the chemical had to be out of its body. So we 
did a three-year study uh, and had nearly 100% success using this chemical to treat sarcoptic mange. Uh, we treated um, more than a dozen bears with it, uh, particularly young bears that we had in captivity for more than a year anyway. And every month we would take blood samples to monitor for residue of this chemical in their blood. What we found is it did not stay in the blood very long. And so we were pretty good to use this stuff in the bears and started using it. And, and again, it was just a miracle cure sometimes. These animals would come in, we'd give it one dose of this uh, drug, and it would, within days, start showing signs of recovery. Well, that was all great, and we were just about to declare victory. And uh, lo and behold, we were notified that one of the bears that we had treated and had released that had been successfully back in the wild for about two years uh, had recently been recovered, and it had been reinfested with mange. And uh, you might think, okay, well, you know, you have a cold, and two years later you get another cold. Well, that's not what the case was here. The second infestation caused a dramatically worse reaction in the bear's skin because the first infestation had caused the body uh, to develop antibodies or uh, histamines to the uh, antagonistic influence of the mites. Well, those histamines and antibodies were still in the animal. So when it was reinfested, they kicked in immediately, causing an allergic reaction that was an order of magnitude worse than the original infestation had caused. And uh, so now we are really in the quandary of whether it is humane to treat it the first time, knowing that if the animal's reinfested, it's going to be dramatically worse the second time. And so that, uh, that threw us a curve. After three years when we were so excited about the prospects, it was quite serendipitous, quite by accident, uh, that two reinfested bears were recovered. One had been treated with a new drug by us. The other had been treated with ivermectin, the old drug. But it's the kind of thing that uh, lets us know that you know, for every complex, intricate problem, there's always a simple answer, and invariably, it's wrong. Uh, you know, people that think it's easy should stop and think that if it were that easy, somebody would have already done it. And so, uh, it really illustrates the complexity of the issues with which we're dealing and why um, a facility and an organization like ours is so important to try to build that bridge between clinical wildlife medicine, the treatment of individual animals, and the management of wildlife health issues in free-ranging populations. Very fascinating. Yeah, I saw the photos. I mean, they're pretty horrific. And then I saw the after photos, how it, with all the hair back, and one of your vets was talking about how you had to quarantine the bear, and then when the, in, in like a isolated chamber with stone, uh, well, cinder, concrete, block, cin yeah. Yeah, can concrete cinder block walls, and then you guys had to flame it, had to yeah. burn off. Yeah, we, we have a, a, uh, a propane-powered blowtorch that yeah. is, it's actually intended to kill weeds. Yes. But uh, we, we have to go over all of the walls, uh, all of the floors, every surface in there, 
uh, with flame because flame is the only thing that will kill these mites. You can't just come in and disinfect it because... I've seen a, a manged bear cross the road where, near where I live, and it's pretty disturbing looking. Well, there, there are a lot of them in Rappahannock County. We're yeah. coming out of the park, yeah. and partly because the park bears, the population's very dense now. They're having to interact with one another quite a Too lot. Too many bears. Uh, uh, well, I wouldn't say too many bears, but a lot of bears. Interesting. Uh, certain people would say too my, many bears. Over at my mom's property, they have a feral cherry orchard mm -hmm. in Flint Hill where you mm -hmm. grew up. And this season, they said they've count, they have counted eight bears yeah. hitting their cherry cherry trees. I, I went over there one day and got to see two of them. I think maybe yeah, it was well, they're, you know, they're, uh, That whole area is— And they noticed some mange spots on one or two of them. Well, they, mange and bears coming out of Shenandoah National Park is real common. And right now— um, they're, they're, we're just not able to do anything about that. Mm -hmm. yeah, it, mange is very rarely fatal, mm. and eventually um, the animals will recover from it, um, will manifest enough uh, antibodies to cope with the infestation. Interesting. So that's why you're saying maybe it's better to not treat so, it. So, yeah. So at this point, um, if an animal, I mean, the, the case to which you referred, which was just so horrible. That bear had more than 90% hair loss. In that case, and we now are concluding the most humane thing to, to have done would have been to euthanize that bear. Wow. And um, even though, well, I mean, you know, again, it, here's where you get down to the dilemma. All right. She had two good years back in the wild doing bear stuff, maybe having offspring. I don't know. Um, before she was reinfested and then subsequently was euthanized. Uh, was that enough to justify the suffering in the second case? I don't know. That, that's a, Here, here's a here's philosophical a hard, question. Here's a hard one along those lines. In my, I give credence to my darker thoughts. I'm wondering, do you ever wonder some of these animals that are showing up for rehabilitation, if you just let them be, is, is it supposed, are they supposed to die off so that we have stronger animals, survival of the fittest? Yeah, so, or, I mean, or does the creature die for food for another creature? Well, they, there you are. Know, instead of rehabilitating the, the wonderful beaver, I, I love them. I love watching all the videos. But on, half of me also asked the question well, should that beaver die so that it doesn't repopulate and so that a coyote can eat it? Well, the, the situation is that in a truly natural setting, I would say absolutely. Some creatures are here to be prey species. You know, one of the kind of moral questions we, we often uh, toss around when we're at a, a national wildlife rehabilitators meeting, and typically these questions come up at the bar, uh, is, okay, um, you raise a rabbit that was orphaned as a baby or caught by a cat, and you raise it and you turn it loose, and it runs 30 yards after you've released it, and a hawk swoops down and catches it, kills it, and eats it. Have you succeeded or failed? Has your work been in vain because the rabbit was killed? And now you, I, I think it's almost universal that wildlife rehabilitators would say, no, we've succeeded because the rabbit fulfilled its destiny. The rabbit was here as part of a food chain. But when I have um, wildlife biologists that say things like, well, let nature take its course, um, my response is nature wasn't driving the car that hit this animal. 
Exactly. Nature did not put the pesticides in the field that have intoxicated this animal. Nature didn't leave lead fragments in that gut pile from a deer that was shot. This is what I thought you would say. And right. uh, so the, the difference is, and we hear people all the time that say, uh, oh, I want this hawk out of my yard. He's eating the f birds at my feeder. It's like, I'm sorry, it's a bird feeder. He's a bird, he's coming there to eat. Mm -hmm. uh, or somebody one time, they said, oh, I rescued a frog from a snake and they wanted praise for that. And it was like, what's wrong with you? Yes, so, yes. So, be, and I hear this when I listen to, especially in the hunting community, when I listen to conservationists speak, that because humans have such a large impact on our environment, that you have to do something. Yeah. And so, of course, if it gets hit by a car, that's not, obviously not just uh, food for somebody else. All right, well, we've had a pretty long and great conversation. Um, do you have anything else you want to talk about? Well, I, I liked see the image on your guys' Instagram with the bobcat that was stuck in the grill of the car. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the things we see that this can't happen. Uh, yeah, that, that particular situation, a, a bobcat ran out in front of a woman's car. Uh, she felt the impact looked in the rearview mirror and didn't see the bobcat lying in the road. She was out on, I believe, northern neck of Virginia and uh, drove on to her job in Richmond. When she pulled into the parking garage, somebody said, do you know you've got a bobcat stuck in the grill of your car? And the bobcat was very much alive, very unhappy having been uh, driven, basically jammed into the, the plastic of the grill for uh, almost an hour with one of his feet hanging out that I'm sure periodically hit the road, one of the treatments we had to do was for the abrasion on the foot where that foot would periodically hit the road and be scuffed. But uh, once the animal was anesthetized and gotten out, they brought it to us. And it was just one of those miracles where there were remarkably few injuries and we were able to release the animal. And we've had similar stories with eagles, with hawks, uh, with owls that... Uh, get hit by cars. Uh, a crow, I had, I got a crow out of somebody's grill one day and, you know, he'd been hit and yet survived it and didn't have a broken bone in his body. And wow. it's just hard to believe. So wow. tough, tough uh, critters. Very cool. Well, so you're cool with wrapping it up? Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Well, thank you so much. Do you, uh, for people, um, you want to check you guys out, what should they go look at? You know, well, you got your awesome, you got an awesome Instagram account with all the little critters on it. I think it's it's uh, at wildlife underscore. I, I have no idea. Okay, I'll figure but it out and that, talk that about it You can it find all of that stuff on the Wildlife Center's website, which is wildlifecenter.org. And uh, on that website, not only will you find... Wildlifecenter.org, uh, no Virginia? Nope, wildlifecenter.org. Uh, wildlife Center being all one word. And uh, there you will find three channels of live streaming video of our patients that we call Critter Cam. One of those cams is devoted to the 19 bear cubs uh, we have in-house right now. And uh, the warning I will give listeners is that once you start watching the cub cam, anything else you may need to get done on that day is in jeopardy because it is very, very dangerous to your productivity and it is habit forming. Uh, watching these bear cubs is like watching clowns on crack. Uh, they are just so animated, and they're constantly moving, constantly interacting, constantly playing. Everything in the world that will move is a toy to a bear cub. 
and uh, they would just go full speed, and then suddenly, as if somebody makes a noise or gives a signal, they all kind of stop and look at each other, and then they all collapse in a big pile and take a nap. And at the end of that, they uh, get up, start it all over again, and it's uh, you can't watch them and not smile. It's just not possible, uh, unless there's something really, really wrong with you. Uh, but we have, you know, eagle cams and things of this nature. Uh, but also all of our um, episodes of Untamed, which is the weekly television series we have developed with the Virginia Public Media Network. Um, first season is now being circulated nationwide to PBS affiliates uh, by American Public Television, APT. Uh, season two is underway. We're about halfway through season two. Um, where we actually had a budget to do the production. So season two is orders of magnitude better than our first season. But on Thursday nights and all of the shows, once they've been aired, uh, appear without commercial interruption uh, on our website. There are more in-depth interviews with some of the people that are shown on the programs, much more um, in-depth discussion of some of the issues, as well as resources for teachers, uh, for or for parents who now are kind of stuck homeschooling their kids and kids are driving them crazy and they need something creative and educational to do. There's a lot of that stuff there as well. So awesome. Well, thank you so much. What a pleasure. And yeah, I highly recommend people check out the Instagram account because you get to see all the critters on there. Otters, snakes, turtles, vultures, bears. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. <laughs>